Are you interested in supporting Politics of Wellness? You can find me on Instagram by following at Politics of Wellness. Additionally, you can also donate at buymeacoffee.com slash POWellness to help support every step of this podcast creation. So on today's show, I have the honor of interviewing Josh Swanson, owner and operator of Finding Hope Counseling LLC in Minnesota. Josh has spent the last several years working in inpatient mental health and is currently pursuing full licensure as a marriage and family therapist for his field under supervision. Additionally, he specializes in using emotion-focused therapy with couples, and he seeks to help others with his experience for those suffering from anxiety and depression. Josh, welcome to the show. So Josh, I really want to know more about you and how you ended up going into your mental health studies and just really what exactly pulled you into that direction. Yeah. Thanks, Courtney. That's that's a good question. So in the therapy world, we think of really anyone who goes into mental health as having some of their own trauma that they wanted to learn how to fix. So some kind of experience so bad that they really wish they would have had the right tools at the right time to make sure that didn't happen again. So when I'm thinking of my own trauma, <clears throat> I think of my dad, who uh, we this, this one moment stands out to me where he was really depressed. He had he wasn't doing well physically. He wasn't doing well mentally. And this this one night, we were leaning on uh, the truck together. We were watching a meteor shower. And I remember looking over at him and just recognizing, like, this is a dude who's really, really down right now and really needs something. There, there are words that I could say or something that I could do that would really help him right now. But I don't have any idea what that is. I don't know what this guy needs. I, I, I know the words are there. I know that some, some deity in my place right now would say the right thing to make him feel better. But I'm not that. I, I don't know what those words are. So when I think of that night, I have a lot of feelings of helplessness that come up, of knowing that something had to happen but not having the tools to do it. My focus then in going into therapy and especially going into couples counseling was making sure that I learned the skills to not be in that place again. So especially with my inpatient hospital experience that we'll talk about, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying most of the time, if somebody's in pain and they're asking for help, I'm pretty good at knowing how to give it. And I think it's not, it's not oftentimes finding the right words. It's not oftentimes saying the right thing at the right time. It's, finding the right way to show or tell someone that they matter, that it's not just a, a meaningless ball of nothing that they're existing on. It's a world where their feelings, their experiences, their thoughts, somebody cares. And that's, that, that's why I went into therapy. That's really beautiful. I just want to tell you how beautiful that sounds. So Josh, what exactly, you know, as you were doing your major and everything, how did you end up in inpatient healthcare? Yeah, I, I wish I had a great answer to that, or I could talk about it being a big passion of mine. But something <laughs> they don't tell you about when a person's going into any kind of mental health field, whether it's social work or like a behavioral nursing, anything like that, is that mm -hmm. the, the jobs don't pay very well. So it's a bunch of people who go in with a really big passion for helping people and trying to change the world. And the, the first job I had fresh out of grad or undergrad with my four-year degree paid eight twenty-five an hour. Oh my God. For, right. for mental health care in like a hospital setting? Was so this in That wasn't actually inpatient for that one. Like okay. I, uh, so there weren't really inpatient or hospital jobs for mental health in all of Iowa mm -hmm. that I could find. So there were a select few, but it was, it was rough. There were not many choices there. So I ended up being a paraeducator at an elementary school, meaning mm -hmm. I was basically a teacher's aide. And so I followed around a couple of different kiddos who had some mental health needs and needed someone to basically help keep them focused. Okay, so it was more of like a 
kind of you know a special education helping position yeah. yep exactly yeah. so I see. That, that job was was rough I can imagine uh, bars <laughs> all over my hands from my time working with an with some kiddos in an environment that didn't have a whole lot of resources for that those kinds of needs so right I, I insisted on getting some additional training while I was there and the the training that they gave me is called CPI I honestly don't remember what it stands for but it was CPI training mm-hmm. and I don't think I ever used any of it really because the the school just didn't have the environmental resources for making something like that work. And as I later learned in a more professional setting, really to restrain a person who's trying to hurt you, you need more than one person. So it really sucks that my first exposure to dealing with violent people was trying to restrain them by myself. Well, yeah. And also I can imagine that that probably doesn't feel very good like in, you know, obviously you're trying to be safe and help that other person be safe and in that moment, but also like that's a huge risk when you don't have the support that you need to be able to do your job well. And also, right, and also safely. And so when you did eventually leave, did you leave that position? Are you still working that position? Or when was the transition to inpatient healthcare? Like, is that something you're currently doing? That was was my first year out of undergrad was working that rough job wow then i spent the next five years doing inpatient mental health in minnesota my goal after that first year working a rough job i'm using the word rough to mean quite a few things but (laughs) my goal after that was to be in a more supportive environment where i thought i was actually learning something and working towards something again it was it was hard feeling stuck in that kind of position so really the only way i could do that was to get out of iowa altogether well, sure. I mean, job availability. I mean, Iowa has many fields of corn, but I would imagine their fields of, you know, healthcare not being so expansive as their corn. I don't think many things can be quite as expansive as that corn. Yay for corny jokes, am I right? Ah, so I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. There are plenty to offer. So my um, wife and I came to Minnesota where we wanted mm-hmm. to do grad school with yeah. the idea of being therapists at that point and really just trying to work towards something again instead of feeling so trapped. So while doing grad school, I did inpatient mental health. And that's where I got a lot of my experience with some more intense mental health symptoms, but sure. in a more supportive environment than what I had experienced in Iowa, which I don't know that I could go back to something quite that awful at this point. I completely understand. I mean, first jobs are always our stepping stone and also the hardest learning curve, I think, when we're stepping into our, you know, new field. So when you say, I guess, intense, you know, we, when we think like mental health, I guess, or when I think of mental health in the average, like day-to-day life, you know, I'm not thinking of the people who are in the position where they have to be hospitalized. So when you're in that hospital setting, I mean, you're obviously dealing with you know, are you dealing with more like, I guess, schizophrenic situations or like, can you just kind of talk about more of your experience with the patients in your setting? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, Courtney, that the patients in the hospital setting fall into like three categories. So first would be, like you said, a lot of schizophrenia or different kind of delusional thinking. And for that population, the main thing we do is just try to keep everybody safe. So there isn't a whole lot of like therapy I can do with someone who thinks that like monsters are going to pop out of the walls and start murdering people or is actively accusing me of working for the CIA or something, or I've been accused of being an assassin who's like spying on people to figure out who the best targets are. Like I, I can't do much to help those people other than make sure they don't hurt themselves or someone else. Right. Just kind of wait for medication to do the thing. Sure. I I totally get that. And so, and I'm guessing those experiences are kind of what has led you into opening your private practice. So that's, that's a population I'm not a huge fan of working with, but the schizophrenia population, or I I forget which axis that is of mental health symptoms, but that's, that's one category that I I try to avoid just because it's not really my cup of tea. Of course. So the ones that I'm more interested in, we have the people who come in for classic depression and anxiety that's been ramped up to 11 due to some pretty hard life circumstances. 
Mm. So I, I remember there are a few people I've worked with who fall into a really intense category of that, I would think, where they come in and they're like, you know, I was doing pretty well. And then my depression kicked up. I couldn't go to work anymore. I stopped mm. working. So my life, my wife left me. I couldn't keep the house up without my wife around. So I lost the house. And because I wasn't living in a home anymore, the court decided that I couldn't keep the kids either. Wow. So in a span of like three months, this wasn't a super uncommon story. In a span of three months or so, someone might come in and say, I lost my wife, my house, my kids, and my job. So I want to kill myself. And I'm like, holy shit, dude. Like, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That sucks. Yeah. Man, that's rough. And, um, you know, you work in Minnesota, obviously, in, like, hospital settings now. And so what, I guess, like, kind of general populations, I mean, do you see, like, all kinds of people, like, all different classes, like, people of color, like, everyone coming in for specific things, like, with that anxiety and depression? Or, like, what are you kind of seeing on that level in regards to what you just explained? Mm -hmm. So I would say the people who are able to come in for inpatient mental health care, that was a pretty diverse population. I will say the people who came in with more extreme symptoms tended to be people from a lower socioeconomic class. And my, my theory is that without proper resources, they couldn't get help earlier. Like someone in a better situation might've been able to. Right. Instead, they have to wait until it's an absolute emergency so that state insurance or whatever will take care of it. Right. To where it'll be deemed medical necess- medically necessary by insurance and, you know, they can actually get that coverage by going to a hospital setting for help. Mm-hmm. So one of the plugs that I want to offer, even doing my couples therapy, I find that state insurance is pretty open to letting people come in for therapy because they know how much cheaper it is to pay for a therapy session or a dozen therapy sessions than it is to pay for two days at an inpatient mental health treatment center. And I think that that's something not a whole lot of people know. So they wait until it's a little too late to be proactive about their mental health. Right. So when you say state insurance, is that different from like, uh, let's say like private health insurance, like, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, or like what exactly is the difference between that and, you know, a plan through um, the Obamacare, I guess. Well, we'll start with that. Mm-hmm. So. I can only speak to what, how Iowa and Minnesota works because uh, there isn't a federal regulation on how that works beyond the marketplace availability with Obamacare. Okay. So in Iowa, they have something with Hawkeye in the name. It's like Hawkeye coverage or Hawkeye care or something. And Minnesota, they have Minnesota assistance or MA as we call it. So for MA, which I'm more familiar with, a person has to be in a pretty low socioeconomic bracket that's based on household size, annual income, uh, that, that kind of stuff. And out of that, if a person qualifies for MA, then the government takes care of basically all of their medical bills with wow. maybe a small copay for some of the services they receive. Wow. So then if someone wants a private insurance plan, like let's say you want Blue Cross Blue Shield, then some of those will offer either through an employer style insurance. So mm-hmm. maybe at a, a W-2 style job, your employer says, working with us, you'll get discounted rates on our employer-sponsored health coverage, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield. Or maybe you need to go through the Obamacare marketplace and get like Blue Cross Blue Shield through MA, which yeah. means you get all the same coverage as someone on a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan through their employer, but the state's paying for it. That's incredible. And I wonder what states do and don't have that. But that's the first time I've ever heard of the state paying for people who are highly impoverished, um, you know, for mental health care, especially like, you know, obviously it's one thing if we're getting pharmaceutical drugs or, you know, of yearly physical, but mental to, to value mental health like that, especially for impoverished communities, that's really super cool to hear. And I didn't even know that was a thing. So I'm definitely, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I'm definitely gonna do more research into that. And I'm I'm glad you brought up getting a physical because I think Something that, that gets on my, my peeve list pretty quickly, I, I think regardless of a political stance, it, it just makes sense to have some really cheap health insurance options. Absolutely. It's, even for someone who says, like, when we provide cheap insurance or government-sponsored insurance, like, we're just encouraging people to be lazy and feed off the system. Like, okay, let's, let's even grant that that's the point, which I don't agree with. But even if that's the point, we're still saving money. 
when we send someone in to get a physical and have them pay a $30 copay or something instead of the $600 medical visit, we're, we're saving them and the, the state a ton of money that they would have needed to pay for emergency care for something that would otherwise be caught in a physical. Right. And so, it's also saving time for mm-hmm. practitioners and for other severe cases of, you know, that need that hospitalization versus, you know, someone went to a doctor, found out they had high blood pressure, never went back or followed up, never got on medication and is now in the ER for like a cardiac event all because they weren't able to get their blood pressure regulated. Absolutely, it's small right. things like that. Yeah. I totally get that. So it's really in cool. In the mental that- health field, I've, I've been able to catch people earlier on in inpatient mental health while crisis care. So people come in because they're feeling suicidal or they're unsafe to others or, or they're just not able to take care of themselves. So right. we've hit that crisis point. But if someone's insurance lets them come in for 12 therapy visits a year or 27, like MA allows in Minnesota, if they can come in for those 27 mental health visits and their insurance is paying out like $100 a session, that's what, just under $3,000 a year? But if someone's in inpatient mental health, their insurance is paying almost $3,000 a day for that. Wow. That's insane. Right? Yeah. Wow. That's really cool, though. I'm definitely like, I now want to kind of see if Virginia or what other states like have programs like that. Or if like, if I were to put like Medicare and Medicaid like side by side with that. But just again, the the mental health care coverage is like really amazing for people of color because they tend to be the ones who need it most because of all of the socioeconomic issues that they face. Uh, mm-hmm. on that which, which note, brings me, I wonder if we're going to the same point. I wanna, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to bring up what that different racial entry barriers, what those barriers are in grad school and going into mental health fields. Sure. Yeah, please talk about that. Because again, like, you know, obviously, like people of color and poor people are the most disenfranchised populations that we mm-hmm. have. And people who are, you know, in situations where they don't have access to good food, they don't have access to good education, they have stressful environments that they live in. And actually, you know, based on your zip code, that tends to be the best determiner of your long-term health outcome now than anything else. So I would love to hear more about, you know, how you believe those socioeconomic and sociopolitical issues affect people and also how those economic and racial barriers, you know, regarding the mental health field affect everything as well. For sure. So I'll, I'll start with what it was like in my grad school classes. And I think it's pretty fair for me to say that the mental health field tends to be pretty liberal politically. So it's, it tends to be a, a field where we try pretty hard to avoid general statements on how people are situated and backgrounds that they come from. So with that in mind, there's a huge emphasis on valuing individual experiences and stories that people can bring into classes, into their practice, self-disclosure, and how to use that. With this understanding that the more a person can show up and be understanding for a client, the really the more healing that encounter is going to be. Right. With that in mind, I think it's tragic that out of the 35 or something, People in my graduating class for grad school, we had one black person. And everybody else was like just white or white presenting? Super white. Yep. Wow. Okay. And yeah. she, she brought it up all the time. She was like, I, I have to point out that I'm the only black voice here. And we had to be very careful at her direction not to ask her to speak on behalf of all black people. I mean, yeah, that's a real thing. That's that's real, because, Mm -hmm. again, like the you know, that says enough in itself that out of 35 people, only one person of color is actually physically in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I I will grant that I'm I'm making some assumptions about the other 34 ish people and saying that they were white passing. Sure. I didn't ask about backgrounds for everybody. Of course. Right. And I think that. Like you were saying, when we're trying to help populations that are really disenfranchised and coming from these really hard backgrounds where they don't have a lot of resources, support, or education, they they need people who understand their experiences. And with the structure of the mental health field, or really just upper education in general, they tend not to get it. So it's 
really a good point that you're mentioning that it's like, how can someone from this background really be able to come and empathize with this population that has to, you know, maybe living in section eight housing, maybe on food stamps, maybe has to have two to three jobs and, and accidentally had, you know, a couple more kids than they planned on because they didn't have good access to healthcare or birth control or any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good point to mention uh, regarding that matter. I, I think that that touches on something really helpful too. And that's that most attempts at fixing problems are pretty shitty attempts at fixing problems. Right. I, I think even my own job as a couples counselor, there are are a lot of things that I really enjoy doing and think are necessary. I, I perform emotion-focused therapy, which is the most evidence-based form of couples therapy currently available. Right. And I think our success rate for helping couples do really well would be significantly higher if we thought more systemically than we do now. So when we think of trying to keep people out of prisons, for example, a, a huge issue in the therapy world, we have people coming in who are getting out of prison, or their families who are trying to deal with a, a father who just went into prison and now this kid who's going to have to just be with his mom and siblings for the next however many years. Right. So one, one solution and the one that the system currently goes for is let's give that family therapy. Let's make sure that they are able to support each other and help each other through this, really be there for each other in some really effective ways. And that's, that's awesome. Like that's, that's great. But I think we would be much better off trying to figure out ways to not split up the family in the first place so that they Precisely. didn't have to come in for therapy. Precisely. It's so funny that you say that because I just read a post that was talking about how you can only do so much individual work, how, you know, this person was working with a therapist for like two plus years and they finally woke up to the idea that it's maybe it's not just them. Like maybe it's the way that we have this built this society that doesn't actually really function for us to thrive. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting point. And it's funny that you're saying that again, because like, okay, this is like really sinking the rock in that just like more than me is like fucked up and needs work. Right. Absolutely. It's like, I have, it's just, it's more than just my personal trauma. It's like, okay, our society is like traumatizing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it would be intellectually dishonest for us to look at black people, for example, who are, are afraid of the police and try to treat them as though they're paranoid. I, I encountered some of that while I was in the hospital. There was a, a black man who had grown up in Chicago and he wanted nothing to do with any of the nurses. I went to his room immediately if security showed up on the unit and the, the hospital like staff were thinking of this guy as paranoid. And so I went over and I talked to him and I'm like, okay, what's, what's going on? Like people are thinking he was paranoid. And he's like, dude, it's not paranoia. People have actually been trying to kill me my entire life. Right. And the, just the systemic oppression and like the things we don't understand, like the things mm-hmm. that we're just starting to have real conversations about with the Black Lives Matter movement, with how parents have to like black parents and people of color have to talk to their kids about like how to avoid police or how to act around police. And like, it's almost like teaching them how to code switch just so they can survive. And right. that's not OK. And I think as our society is you know, becoming a bit more globalized and, uh, and evolving, you know, how we also really target like homeless people and poor people. And, you know, I just, I don't know what besides us all becoming aware and they're actually becoming like some form of systemic change it will help. And I'm hoping talks like these really help spur more awareness. So again, I'm really grateful that you're mentioning all these points and, you know, sharing these stories um let me see so like as someone who's in the field and like seeing this every day and being exposed to this every day you know obviously like opinions and ideas are ours but like if you could really change the narrative of you know how mental health and hospitals and also just how people are suffering in these situations Mm -hmm. systemically like what do you think would help change or would help think just help the face of this change or be better or be more uh aware of every single person who walks through the door not just like maybe you know i guess like i don't know how to like ask this but like i guess just in a way that's not just like exclusively white or in a way that's not like as white focused like how we could 
change things for the better to include everybody? Yeah. So I think in order to answer that question, I have to give a little bit of background on the field of psychology itself. So I'll, I'll try to be brief, but basically Go for it. <laughs> the entire field of psychology is formed by predominantly old white guys. That's, that's where a lot of this came from. Early psychology before anything evidence-based was literally just people hanging out, largely doing cocaine, thinking about how their own brain worked and trying to apply it to other people. So that idea, fortunately, we've moved away from <laughs> following the 100% sound advice of old white people on cocaine and right. so, like not needing evidence. We've, we've moved away from both of those. Yeah. But there are pieces that linger. So sure. now our, our psych research is, is pretty evidence-based. It's worked really hard to stop being a soft science where it's subject to a lot of different biases and different uncontrolled variables and trying to move more into the world of hard science where we can measure things and make statistical assertions about how the world works or how people work at least. Right. So the, the problems with that still exist though. And one of the big issues is how do you get people to even volunteer for a study on something? So it's, it's not going to go very far if I just start hanging up flyers and say, hey, I need volunteers for something. So unfortunately, most of the research for the behavioral sciences comes from undergrad students. It comes from like first year psych students and different experiments that people pulled on them with their consent, of course. Of course. And may I ask, is this just something like, you know, undergrads do for like, I guess, you know, I do like a final research paper for or uh, like a final clinical study or something. Is that what it's related to where that information part comes of it. from? That's definitely part of it. Okay. Another part might be if I'm some kind of social science profession or I have my own group or something, then I might ask some kind of university if I can come in and host a study with their students. Mm. Or if I'm a tenured professor, it might be part of the expectation with the job that I'm like actively leading in the research field. And then mm -hmm. I'd be working with my own students to do things. Or mm. it might be, like you said, some final year grad students who need to create their own study and they're working with the undergrad kids. Right. Adults. Sorry. I had, I had the same thing same thing everyone's a child inside right so um, when we start touching on that we mm -hmm. have to start acknowledging the biases in how undergrad works and that it's a lot of white people from fairly affluent families or at least who are doing well enough but they were able to make it into undergrad which doesn't necessarily have to mean they're doing well but they're doing well enough to make it better. right and that leaves out a pretty big chunk of the population so I think to, to answer your original question, if there's a myth that I could do away with or some piece of information I wish people would take more to heart, I, I really wish people would acknowledge we're not logical. I think the, the white man's burden says, I am the logical one. I, I'm a guy. I know how the mind works. I'm able to think clearly. You're just being an irrational woman or an angry black woman or some, some version of that. But I, as the white man, am able to stay calm and collected and tap into my true knowledge and reason. And that's just not how anybody works. Right. And um, to kind of like, this is going to kind of steer away from where we've been at, but like, you know, toxic masculinity and uh, sexism and, mm -hmm. and, and the whole issue, obviously like gender is a big topic now. So as far as like the toxic masculinity aspect that I would say you just described to me, right? Because, yeah. you know, a lot of, uh, many men, I'm not going to say all men, but many men have this idea that feelings shouldn't be a thing that, you know, obviously, like you said, women are emotional. What has been your experience with that as a man uh, being in this field of psychology? Mm -hmm. I honestly, it's going better than I thought it would. So I always have to be really aware of how I'm presenting, especially to women. And make sure, making sure that I'm not mansplaining or talking down to them or, or really just even being intimidating. When I did my unpaid internship, we always had to sit in a small room in order to talk to the high schoolers we were mm. working with. And I always made sure to sit on the inside chair so that if I was working with a high school woman, that she had the ability to leave the room without trying to get over around me or something. Right. So, like the door being there and you're not in the way of the door. Or right. Anything. Right. Right. So part of my experience as a man in the psychology field is trying really hard not to be intimidating. 
the other part of this is it's I think it's easier for me to connect with men than it would be if I were a woman. When I see couples presenting in for therapy, I in emotion-focused therapy, we often break each member of the partnership into a role. The role is either the pursuer or the withdrawer. So in a healthy relationship, we don't expect things to be about 50-50 for who's asking for more couple work or who's asking for more connection. We're we're shooting for like 60-40 or something. Someone's asking Mm -hmm. for connection. And when they ask for connection, most of the time it gets met. And every once in a while, the other person will ask for connection too. And that'll be met pretty well. That's a healthy relationship. Right. So where we start to see things get skewed is when it turns into like 80-20. And when that happens, the pursuer putting in 80% of the bids for connection really gets exhausted and sometimes they're not very skilled at asking for that connection they're still putting in energy they're just not doing it in a very productive way right meanwhile the withdrawer is oftentimes afraid they're going to say something wrong or has been told not to share their feelings in the past and Mm -hmm. so in the face of a partner who's asking for a lot of attention or asking for really any connection they tend to shut down so something that I found a lot of is that men tend to be the withdrawers when I'm working with them Interesting. Mm-hmm. So a stereotypical couple coming in, like a heterosexual relationship coming in, and this is, this is oftentimes the case, will be a woman saying, I am just feeling so ignored now. I'm trying really hard to connect with him, but whenever I try to get him to open up, he's, it's like having a brick wall for a partner. And I'm just feeling really alone. I keep needing to turn to my friends to get connection or get any kind of attention, and he's just not there for me. Right. And meanwhile, the guy will say something when I can get him to talk, some version of, I just, she's all over me. She's always asking for things from me and I can never do anything right. As soon as I try to say anything to her, she just starts yelling at me and talking about how I'm not good enough. And that's, that's just too much. Like, why would I want to open up in the face of that? So whenever I see her starting to get needy, I just go away and start working on something instead. Hmm. And, I, and it's kind of funny that you say that because it kind of fits in the whole classic narrative of like the woman being the caretaker and the man being the worker in the mm-hmm. classic heteronormative cis like relationships. For sure. So yeah. when you when you say that most or a lot of people take in the toxic masculinity messages, I, I think I would argue that almost everybody does. But the difference might be whether we agree with them logically or not. So with, with my claim that we're not logical creatures, we also have our emotional brain. And our emotional brain processes things about a thousand times faster than our logical brain. So our emotional brain learns things just like our logical brain does. And when the emotional brain takes in a message, it doesn't, doesn't unlearn that just because we learn it's wrong. Right. So if I'm in a cisgender heterosexual relationship and my, my wife, I'll use a real world example. My (laughs) wife comes to me and says, I really need you to step up with the housework. I I feel like I'm doing most of it and that's overwhelming to me. My logical brain will say, well, for sure. Like it's my job to do half of that. We should be a 50-50 household where we're doing our share of the work in the house to make sure that things feel fair. Right. My emotional brain will say, the fuck? I mowed the lawn this week. I took out the trash. I changed the dishes. I, I went through two diapers. Like, what do you want from me? I'm right. way more than I should have to in order to take care of this family. Right. The part of you that's like taking that statement personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it becomes an active effort to make sure that we're not giving into some of those really hardly ingrained messages society's given us. Right. Um, so to kind of, so I guess to kind of like, back up a little bit in the conversation you know when you were studying with your major and, and as you were studying right you have mentioned some of the like socio what I would consider like sociopolitical issues with your major right like obviously there are a lot of white men doing a lot of cocaine uh, who were creating this whole thought pattern of like psychology in the as we know it in the west um what are some of the socioeconomic you know I remember for example like when I was in college I watched this documentary uh, and it was literally around socioeconomics, like 101. And it was about how the spectrum of health versus wealth and how health is literally determined by your wealth. So what were some of the things that you learned in your major? Maybe something that really stuck out to you, you know, about socioeconomics or even sociopolitically, uh, besides what you already discussed, um, that like stuck out to you or that really just impacted you? 
as far as some piece of information that I learned about how different factors related to socioeconomics or race affect a person's mental health? Yeah, more or less. Okay. So, so to your question, I think a, a piece that would be helpful for more people to know. Sure. There's a, there's a relationship, and I, I did a paper on it, but I don't remember the exact numbers. But there's a, a correlation between the amount of trauma a girl faces in her environment growing up and when she gets her first period. So Fascinating. Women, yeah, girls who grow up in more traumatic environments get their periods earlier because their mind is getting the message, this isn't a safe place. We need to grow up quickly and have kids so that when we die early, we've passed on our genes. That's fucking crazy. Right. Um, please send me that study in the meantime. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but yeah, our biology does crazy things like that to us. And we don't even think about that, right? Like, life is so fucking busy and crazy all the time, we're not even mm -hmm. thinking about how our natural biology might be reacting to the things around us. Right, for sure. So yeah. when I'm thinking of poor and impoverished communities, I my paper was on uh, areas who had experienced a group trauma. So that's oftentimes after some kind of like global disaster or mm -hmm. uh, maybe even a man-made disaster, but something that instills a, a long-term sense of fear. But I would imagine the same idea applies to impoverished communities or areas where people are losing friends and family all the time. Right. I mean, can you imagine losing your son who's 14? And especially people who are lo losing their kids and fathers and mothers and daughters to police mm -hmm. I and police the, violence. The, the first time I worked with a, a black 17-year-old-ish, it was, it was a high schooler, the, the first time I heard a story of someone watching their friend get murdered by the police. And this, this guy told me like the first-hand account of what had happened, and he said that later on, like sometime recently then, he had had an almost run-in with the police where he just ran as fast as he could. It was like, yeah, I knew I was breaking the law. Like, I, I don't give a fuck. I'd rather break the law than get murdered. Right. And I, I remember within a month of that experience, I talked to a, a white person who was talking about how if you don't have anything to hide, then you shouldn't be afraid of the police. And I just, I, I couldn't get over how far removed that understanding was from the experience this black man had told me of. Right. And that's and that's the thing is like we kind of have a lack of empathy as a society. And that's the thing I think is shifting with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think what's happening to some degree now is that people are becoming more compassionate. We are speaking up, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're so politically correct. And it's like, no, we're just being more considerate of people that might feel some type of way or mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, I need to be more understanding of this thing I've been ignorant about for a long time, or that, you know, was quote unquote, just a joke. Like, no, I think in many ways we're becoming more compassionate and we're waking up and we need to be more observant of not just like our own day-to-day -day lives. Like we need to care about other people. Right. And I think that we have to be careful with that because a lot of what we're facing or what honestly people of color are facing is a lot of systemic oppression. So there are things that we can do that help to lessen that pressure. But I think as the Black Lives Matter movement points out on their website, there are a lot of systemic things that have to change for real change to occur. So right. what one big thing that we can do and that I'll advocate for people doing is embracing some hypocrisy. There's an idea in the, the progressive world that we need to be tolerant of other people. We need to be able to hear other people's perspectives, give them space, recognize that trauma has happened and be able to help them. That's, that's a very healing thing. And at the same time, and here's the hypocritical part, we have to recognize that sometimes that's not a helpful experience for someone to share. If I'm talking to a Nazi, like I honestly, I don't, I don't care that they have a big traumatic background where they were hurt by other people. Like that, that sucks for them, but my listening to their experience while they're talking hate and advocating for the, for the destruction of other groups, that's not helping. That's, that's providing a platform for this person to espouse hatred in the name of sharing their own trauma. And so a way of embracing that hypocrisy that I'll advocate for, we in the mental health field call quarantining the trauma. And it, it says, like, honestly, at some point, there's, there are types of conversations that we just have to give up on and recognize my providing a listening ear where I'm trying to be as understanding as possible might just make things worse. 
Right. And of course, like that statement was in no way like advocating for us to be compassionate to, you know, blatant white supremacy or blatant hate crimes. Right. And at at this point, with those of us in the the lower middle middle classes, we we can't do much to make systemic change. So a lot of the time, what we can do is try to change that narrative and try to help keep the ball rolling on those big social movements. So this is where I get a little torn over how to be an ally versus hijacking someone else's pain. So, for example, when I see, and this this has happened, when I see a a guy making very aggressive advances on a woman, he might be just completely oblivious or actively ignoring her cues that she's not interested in this conversation or is feeling unsafe. I, I have a question to ask myself. I have to ask, is it helpful for me to intervene in this situation? Do I want to step in and swoop in and be the savior in this. So on the one hand, if I do so, I'm potentially being an ally. Maybe she says, thank you. This, this was a moment where I needed a guy to come in and stop a guy from doing a stereotypical guy thing and give me space to be myself because I didn't feel I had that space. On the other hand, maybe I'm just hijacking her opportunity to, to do the same thing and or giving her the message that she needs someone to save her. So when it comes to big social movements, Sometimes I struggle with how to be an ally to like Black Lives Matter without basically mansplaining or white hijacking the, the movement somehow. And I think one of the best ways we can do that is just to listen to what other people think needs to, hap- needs to happen and jump on board. That and donate. Give your fucking money. Give your money to important movements and give your money to important organizations because mm-hmm. nothing actually helps more than your money. So give your money away <laughs> to organizations like Stop Asian Hate, like uh, there's community bail funds, things like that, things that you can physically give your finances to to help lift these organizations that are actively in the trenches. And I think that's like one of the biggest things. Um, I'm going to kind of steer the conversation a yeah. little bit. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. So I kind of want to dive more to you um, as an individual and just, you know, now that you're doing a private practice, you know, that's a big leap, you know, having your own business, mm-hmm. having a private practice, working for couples. What's it like? Do you enjoy it? And, you know, is it something that you want to continue to pursue once you are uh, actually have your licensure? I mean, how do you kind of want to carry your future and your continued studies and just your profession overall? Definitely. So I'm going to swallow some of the pieces that I could definitely rant about and talk about some of the things I find more exciting about sure. this. Sure. <laughs> so my, I have my master's in counseling psychology. And after taking a test called the AMTFRB, I think, I am now a licensed associate of marriage and family therapy, which means I have a supervisor, but I can effectively practice therapy on my own. I just need to make sure he can sign off on all the notes. So if an insurance company audits me, they can say, okay, this guy who is a fully licensed person said that you were doing the right thing. So working toward full licensure is really exciting, mostly because I make a lot more money when I'm fully licensed. Right. So in order to uh, this, I'm going to be careful not to turn this into a rant, but in order to get fully licensed, a person needs 2000 hours of clinical experience. And how much of that needs to be direct client contact depends on what license they're going for. But for me, off the top of my head, I think it's a thousand of the 2000 have to be direct client contact. So the problem is companies know that. So we get a lot of different companies who will try to onboard therapists and pay them really low rates, knowing that they don't have a whole lot of options until they're fully licensed. So I'm really grateful for the place that I'm contracting through. I'm giving them 35%, I think, of all of my profit that I make from clients. Wow, that's good. Yeah, yep, that's a, that's a pretty high rate. Other, yeah. other clinicians I work with, or don't work with, but graduated with, they're looking at like a 40-60 or maybe a 50-50 ratio. Mm. So getting a 65-35 ratio is really good. Yeah, that's a very good percentage. Mm -hmm. So for that 35%, they do all the marketing, and then they give me referrals from that marketing. They provide an office space, and I have my licensed supervisor on hand. Right. So that's that's pretty awesome. That's a pretty nice set of services. 
And when I'm fully licensed, I can start taking insurance on my own instead of needing to go through somebody else, which means I can effectively get like a 50% raise on how much I'm making right now. That's awesome. Yeah. That's pretty and, exciting to keep working toward. Yeah. And um, what's your favorite part about working with couples versus like doing individual therapy? Mm-hmm. So the theme behind the sessions and the feel for them is very different. So when I'm doing an individual, when I'm working with an individual client, I'm helping them to know that their experiences are pretty normal and trying to reduce a lot of the shame around what's going on. So if I'm working with someone who maybe has like one drink every three days or something, and they're experiencing a lot of anxiety and shame around the ridiculous drinking habit that's making them feel awful about themselves, I can give them space and be like, hey, just so you know, like that's not an excessive amount of drinking. That's, that's, that's fine. So I can provide some third-party guidance on what that looks like and also a lot of challenging. So I build the relationship with my clients so that I can challenge them and say, okay, you, you said this, but you've also told me this other thing. Like, how do you have to put those two together? Right. <laughs> provide a space for people to work through some of those things while also feeling safe. When I'm working with a couple, it's, it's a completely different story. So the challenging isn't my job in a couple session. I can do a little bit of it, but like, that's not my big focus. My big focus in a couple session is I'm digging. I'm digging for what's the pain point in this relationship. What's hurting her? What's hurting him? What are the things that they feel so much shame about that they can't talk about together? And how do I make them feel safe sharing those things? So the piece that I get really excited for and that I work toward every session, I'm watching the clock constantly to make sure I still have enough time to get there during my session is what can I get them to share, to share this really hard experience and ask for support from their partner? So that doesn't mean that it's like, I feel lonely and I need you to call me more often. That would be more of a solution to this. Right. I'm looking for something like, I feel really lonely when you're gone and don't message me. And it's really hard for me when those things happen to feel like you still love me. And when people yeah. can share that kind of thing, can share that kind of pain, it doesn't just give space for a solution, which can also happen. It gives space for their partner to come in and give them that reassurance and say, oh, I, I do really love you. And I know that that's hard when we can't talk to each other, but I want you to know that I do really care about you. And when we can have those conversations, it's not just our logical brains that are hearing what's being said, it's our emotional brains that get keyed in and start to feel safer. When that happens, we can stop being the broken people our society turns us into and start to be healthy functioning members of a partnership. And that's, that's the beauty of couples counseling to me. That's really cool, man. I like, it's interesting hearing that. Cause like, it's almost like in individual sessions, you're kind of like the voice of logic when they're experiencing a really strong emotion. But it's interesting because when you're, it seems like when you're in a couple session, like there's too much logic and you're kind of trying to bring that emotion back in. So it's interesting kind of hearing that perspective. Yeah. Yep. And that's why in a couple sessions, I do emotion focused therapy. Yeah. Then, that makes sense. <laughs> bring it a full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so technically there's emotion focused therapy for individuals. I call it EFIT. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't figured out all of the nuance for that one, but that's, that's another thing I'm excited for is to get a little better at sitting with the emotion with my clients individually, rather than making it such a cognitive experience. Cause I sure. want to feel like I'm just the voice of reason talking to their logical brain and challenging them on things. I also want to give them the space just to feel some of those feels, you know? And just to like breathe. (laughs) Yeah. So Josh, I've really enjoyed talking to you and I just want to ask, you know, I ask every person that comes on the show this question and I'm just interested in like, you know, what are your long-term hopes for your industry? And I mean, this can be anything and everything. So, you know, what, what you want to see happen, things you'd like to see change for the better Um, things you may enjoy just now and that you hope continue? Yeah, good question. So first, I want things to be cheaper. I I have a lot of undergrad debt, a lot of grad school debt, and then getting trained in emotion-focused therapy, I have a lot of debt. So those all just seem like kind of arbitrary barriers to a job we're telling people is essential. So I'm not sure exactly how we as a society say we have to have a certain job, but also people need to go into debt to have that job. Right. (laughs) One of my hopes is that we... Stop doing that. 
as a society. And I'm totally fine keeping my debt so that other people don't have to get fucked in the future. Like, that's, that's fine. Right. So that's, and also, that would open a door up for people of, in the future, too. Like, if a financial barrier is out of the way, then more people can enter the field. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that, that would be what my hope, is that more people can access the field. And I, I think that in particular, that opens it up to people of lower socioeconomic status who maybe can't do a nine-month-long unpaid internship like I had to do. So right. let's make this more accessible to people. That's, that's my first hope. My second one is a point of excitement. I think the stigma against mental health is mental health treatment is going way down. I hear a lot more people casually refer to my anxiety or my depression I hear people talking about how they just don't feel comfortable doing something, which gives them the space to draw the boundaries for that. We're talking about their triggers. And while there's some negative feedback on that, for the most part, I hear people getting a lot of support when they draw those lines. And I think that's really cool. I'm excited for how our field is helping people feel normal for being human. And if I, if I may give one more piece of what I think is really helpful knowledge for people to know. Is that, sure. Is that okay? So yeah, go for it. Every, every emotion has a purpose. Every primary emotion has a purpose. We have secondary emotions that cover those up. Like if I'm, I don't know, yelling at my wife for cheating on me, like, sure, I'm, I'm kind of angry about that. But mostly, like, I'm pretty fucking heartbroken that this happened. So right. that the anger then would be a secondary emotion. But the sadness is my primary emotion. So every primary emotion has something that it's trying to tell us, something it's trying to give us or change in our lives. And that sadness, that loneliness, that's, that's your body telling you that you need more connection with other people. And I, I talk to way too many people who say, I wish I just didn't feel sad anymore. That, that sucks. Like our society really isolates people. And I want to I let people know your sadness is trying to tell you that it wants you to open up to people more. Let them in. Trust people. Take some risks. Be vulnerable. Right. Because honestly, a lot of times if you open up, someone else might want to talk about the same hard things they're going through. And that's just another point of connection. Mm -hmm. Self-disclosure begets self-disclosure for sure. For sure. So, Josh, I really just want to thank you for sharing everything you shared on the show. I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, diving deep, <laughs> diving super deep with me. And um, yeah, thank you. Even through all the audio issues that we had. <laughs> getting to this episode. This is try number six for anyone listening. <laughs> Josh, I just really want to thank you for coming on the show, for being a guest, for dealing with all the audio issues that we had, and for really like deep diving and sharing your perspective. Thanks for having me, Courtney. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm excited to be able to share this experience with you and your viewers. If you all want to learn more about Josh and his personal practice, please visit his website, findinghopecounseling.org. I keep up my blog there, so I'm excited to see what you guys can learn. Do you feel like it's time for you to speak up? Politics of Wellness is here to listen. If you're a healthcare worker of any kind, be it a personal trainer, massage therapist, pharmacist, doctor, psychologist, nurse, and beyond, I want to give you a platform for discussion. I want to hear about your industry, your experiences, what you want to change, what you like and dislike, and what your hopes are. If you're interested in having a conversation with me, please reach out via email at politicsofwellness at gmail.com.